Hello and welcome to Shaping Success, a brand new and very exciting podcast from Simply Be, all about women at the top of their game with me, Fleur East. As a singer and broadcaster, I'm inspired by women who push boundaries, women who have carved a different path to society's stereotypes, women who refuse to fit in. And I want to find out who and what shaped their journey to success. So in this podcast series, I'm joined by female icons from all walks of life to talk about their inspirations, heroes, and the moments that change them. We'll hear from some of the biggest female names and the ones you might know less about as they share their remarkable stories of determination and dedication and reveal the moments and icons that have shaped them along the way. Ultimately, our guests all have one thing in common. They're killing it. So let's meet them. With a career spanning more than 25 years in the music industry, today's guest is undoubtedly an essential part of the British entertainment landscape. A singer, musical theatre performer and presenter, Beverly Knight first made a name for herself as one of Britain's greatest soul singers. Never one to stand still, as her music career reached dizzying heights, she pivoted towards stage acting and has performed in some of UK's most high-profile West End productions ever since. Amongst her many accolades, this year she won an Olivier for her latest performance as the redoubtable suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst in a radical new musical mixing hip-hop, R&B and funk at the Old Vic in London. And with a new album coming out very soon, she certainly isn't slowing down. If the next 25 years of her career are anything like the first, there's no limit to where she can go. Welcome to Shaping Success, Beverly Knight. Hello, God, that was an intro. Oh my God. I mean, 25 <laughs> years though. I know. And it's, it's actually, next year will be 30 years. What? So it's been, it's been a minute. And you still look 30. So I don't understand how <laughs> you've been Bless in the industry you. that long. Um, listen, I'm trying. It's, 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 it's avocados. It's vitamin <laughs> is it? is E. Is? I need to order some avocados <laughs> now. <laughs> I want to know how it all started for you. Ah, oh, so started at the very beginning, a very yeah. good place to start. <laughs> I was spotted, old school, like seriously old school vibes. Oh. I was in a club opening for a recording artist who had a hit at the time. Mm. The party was being thrown by a community radio station, okay. Brackets Pirate, um, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my local one in Wolverhampton. <laughs> The guy who I was warming up for, artist called Sinclair, mm. he brought his A&R man with him, lovely guy called Mark Cher, and heard me and everything, beckoned me over and said, oh, would you be interested in a, a career in music and that? And I said, yeah, absolutely. They said, well, we'd like you to come down to London, you know, talk it wow. through. Basically, they wanted to offer me a deal, Mark did. Mm. And my response was, well, I'm about to go to uni and uh, I think I'm pretty good. And if you think I'm good, then you'll hang on for me, won't you? And you know, they hung on for me. Did they? They waited. So in the last year of uni, which was 94, um, I signed my deal and put out my first single. I hadn't even finished uni, but yeah. Oh my so goodness. it all happened in 94. Mad. That is so surprising to hear because a yeah. lot of the time, I mean, you were at a crossroads really at that point because yeah. you could have gone one of two ways. And yeah. majority of the time you'd think, well, if you want to sing, you'd go and get the record deal. Yeah. Why was it so important to you to, to carry on with your studies? Two words, 
Jamaican parents. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Listen, there was no way. I mean, uh, uh, to be honest, I say Jamaican parents. My mum and dad would have been heartbroken if I hadn't gone to uni. Mm, mm. But I was also a nerd. I still am a nerd. <laughs> I wanted to study. So important to me, mm. you know, getting my degree, that higher education thing. I'd grafted so hard. Yeah. So I didn't want to give that up. But I knew it's it's funny. Inside of me, I just knew I was going to make music and mm. it was going to happen and I was going to sign a deal. And, you know, I just didn't know the path. I had no idea how it was going to happen. Yeah. But I knew. So for me, it wasn't so much turning down a record deal. Right. It was just, I'm postponing it. I'm deferring it. Like you defer, yeah. you know, your... Your, your studies um, or your, your studies. Year or whatever. I'm going to defer it for, for a bit. But I was absolutely rock solid confident. And so when they came back in my third and final year, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm being, you know, like I'm full of hubris, but I was like... Yes, that's right. You came back. Good. Yeah. Right. Now let's start. <laughs> and that's before anything mad. had happened. And you before were just like, yeah. a thing had happened. What did you study at uni? <laughs> this, is the, this is the jokes. <laughs> so religion, um, theology. Okay. And the philosophy of religion. And then my minor was performance arts. The yeah. minor was performance the arts. The minor was performance arts. <laughs> I thought I needed to just keep that in my back pocket. Was that like your family background? Is that why you wanted to study religion? Is um, what kind I of think you... so. I, my family background and just the diversity of religion yeah. itself in Wolverhampton. You got everyone, you know, Sikhs, the, 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 the huge Sikh community, mm. which I'd grown up, you know, literally shoulder to shoulder with. Um, my own background coming from a strict Pentecostal mm. Christian household, you know. And I was just so fascinated by religion. Why do you think that? But my family think this. Yeah. You know, it it just fascinated me and always had. So I took it to to uni. So interesting. That's really I cool. never would have expected you to tell me that. Yeah. Today. I know. Mad. <laughs> so you grew up in a Pentecostal like church. That's where you went when you were growing up. Did you sing in church as well? From birth. Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, did we sing? Oh my God. The so my mum sang mm -hmm. in church. My dad sang in church. And um, my older sister, when she was old enough to sing, also sang. And the, the kind of watershed moment for me was mum and her singing partner, um, Sister Gloria Adams. Yes, Sister Gloria. Sister Gloria Adams. Although being Jamaican, we all called her Sally because Jamaicans have two name it's either sally or gloria is, a, is that what it is yeah that's that's an entire new podcast Amazing. about jamaicans and their two names <laughs> but not today um so they sang and my sister joined them but i'm sat in the congregation like what about me Hello. i was only four. Oh my gosh. I was like, what about me so eventually i had my chance to sing and four-year-old me squeaking out these notes but it was quite obvious that I was going to be a singer. Oh. 
So um, the minister at the time was like, well, Sister Beverly's clearly going to sing. She's got to sing for the Lord. So I was always called on to sing. And then I joined the choir and then I led the choir. And my life in music started in on from the pulpit. Yeah. And your parents were musical. So it just naturally kind of passed on to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, going back generations um, with my mum's side, all the way back, grand, my great grandparents and, and probably beyond. Wow. Yeah. Mate, it's in the bloodline. It really It was always going to happen. Yeah. Is that always. why you think you were so confident that you were going to sing? Like you just knew. Was that the reason? I was a confident child. Mm. I was that kid, you know. <laughs> Show off. <laughs> yeah, I read that you, you know. actually said you were like the mouthiest one out uh, of you and your by siblings. By far. By far. I had no fear of the stage. I had no fear of audiences. Um, like my mum sang, but she sang because of her Christian convictions, mm. just like my dad, not because they were, you know, they wanted any kind of career in it or anything like that. My mum was a nurse, yeah, you know, good okay. old NHS. My dad was a builder. Um but they just sang because they, they loved it and the church gave them that outlet and they could sing to the Lord. Me, I, I wanted to be on top of the pops. But <laughs> I I was just supremely confident in my ability mm. to sing. I want to know what it was like because you grew up in Britain like in the 1970s and yeah. you were like starting a career. What was it like back then trying to hustle and make it into the industry? <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Britain, oh, bless her. She's come a long way. She's got a long way to go. Bless. When I was a kid singing um, and my, my, my brother, you know, after me, um, just some of the things that I saw him go through and me as his older sister and then my sister looking out for the two of us. Yeah, Britain was, it was tricky. Mm. It was a tricky place. We were the first of um, our generation to be born in Britain. My mum and dad had to, despite travelling on a British passport, mm. they had to go through the whole becoming British citizens, you know, the naturalisation thing because the law changed in 1981, which said that if they didn't become British citizens, we could be flung out the country oh. as being aliens, even though we were born there. And anyway, just a strange time. And that was uh, reflected in the populace at the mm. time. Mm -hmm. You know, being black and kind of hanging on to your Jamaican heritage, but being absolutely 100% British, mm. but not English because you didn't have parents who were English was a weird, weird, weird thing, you know, that code switching thing mm. that we, we talk about where you're you're walking to this door and you're, you know, you're you're British with your, your English friends and you walk into that door and you're very much a Jamaican and but the constant in my life was the music. Mm. That was the thing that kept me focused, sane, joyful, happy. And around me, the the the, the wider environs, I remember the, the the birth of of heavy metal you know mm, wow. um <laughs> coming out of birmingham and all these heavy metal bands and sabbath and you know yeah. uh, before them was led zepp and you know heavy 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 music and so there was a, a music scene 
but it wasn't necessarily the scene that I was going to be yeah, a part I was of. You say. imagine me as a heavy metal singer. <laughs> yeah. But there was very much music in the soil, mm. in in you know the West Midlands in general. So heavy metal came out of Brom, two tone came out of Coventry, mm-hmm. um, Selector and the Beat and all these fab. Um, bands and Wolverhampton kind of was part and parcel of all of that. The reason I mention my Jamaican heritage is because the the Jamaican community, the West Indian community, mm. had such an impact on Britain at that time that it just changed the face of music in Britain and being made in Britain forever influenced the punks and everything. Mm. And little me, I grew up with all of this as my backdrop. Yeah. And then from the US comes the early days of hip hop and all the soul and the Mm R&B. So I grew up in this melting pot of music. We had Radio 1, Radio 2, but then we had our local radio, Mm. which was Beacon Radio and Radio WM, which was a BBC radio station. And then you had your pirate radio station. And then I had my pirate radio station. (laughs) And that, you know, in the late 80s. So music was, you had this huge expanse of music squeezed into very few outlets. Yeah, yeah. But the good thing was it meant I heard everything. It You couldn't, you had tribes, but when you put on the radio, radio wasn't so tribal because it had to reflect everything. So I heard everything mm. and all of this kind of went into my body and into my brain and began to shape my musical direction. That's what I was going to ask. How did it influence your your musical style? Huge. I mean, the 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 best thing that radio ever did to me or did for me was introduce me to Prince. Mm. Here in 1999... For the first time, just took my head off my shoulders. I was, that was it. Prince fan forever. That was me. But it had such an influence. I would listen to the Pointer Sisters next Mm. to Shalimar, next to David Bowie, next to Duran Duran, next to early Wham and, you know, and Eddie Grant. I mean, we had (laughs) so much and it was, you'd never put them on one playlist, but that was our life. Wow. That was what we had. We used to tape the songs off the radio. You'd s- sit there waiting for the DJ to just shut stop up. talking. Shut yeah, up, yeah. shut up, <laughs> shut up. Press, play and record now <laughs> to get the song. And then quick, you've got to press stop before he comes back in. Stop. Wow. We made our own mixtapes like that. It's interesting because within all the influences, you mentioned Prince, who yeah. later on in your career asked you to go on tour with him. Yeah, well, I did. I, right. I did a residency with him. Yeah, I mean, what? And Madness. then you also mentioned David Bowie, who was a huge supporter of yours. Yes. Tell me about that. How did that even happen? Oh my god! Did, <laughs> when I think of my career and think of the people who have been so kind enough to allow me into their space, I'm like, how has yeah. this happened? David Bowie. I was uh, working on album number two mm-hmm. and did a gig at the Jazz Cafe and I had management. They were brand new at the time. Um, and what I didn't know or didn't appreciate is that they were looking after David Bowie's PR. Ah. And they had spoken to David Bowie about this singer. Oh, you know, she's really good and da, da, da. Um, 
Well, he'd invited himself to come and see me perform. I didn't know. As if that happens. As if. So I'm at the jazz cafe and I'm singing away and I'm doing my thing and I happen to just be looking around. That's David Bowie. Nah. Could never be. But I knew it was because Iman was next to him. Oh, my gosh. And you're not going to miss Iman anywhere. No. Because the queen of all things are just stunning. So I'm singing. I'm looking. I'm singing. I'm looking. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like this. (laughs) I get off stage, um, you know, finish. Go to my dressing room. Well, he's there. He's in my dressing room. And he mouth's like, darling, it was so amazing. Worst accent ever. But, <laughs> but I'm there with you. I'm still in it. I'm in the story. You're, you're, you're yeah, in the yeah. story. <laughs> and David was like, that was great. Yeah, like a like a little Aretha. Little Aretha. That's what oh. I'm going to call you. Little Aretha. And I was like, <laughs> like gobbledygook. Just floored. And he just, he talked about me in, in interviews and oh to his record label, which I think was Virgin at the time. And just because of his interest, mm. people were interested in me. So he really helped to bring that kind of mainstream, you know, kind of curiosity yeah. as to who this this new singer from a place we don't know, apart from the <laughs> football team, um, you know, who is she? I mean... Uh, Amazing. And, and with Prince, that was pure manifestation. I was like, one day. <laughs> yeah. One day, I'd look at my posters in my room and go, well, I'm going to meet you one day. You did. You don't, you don't meet know you me one yet. day. Yeah. You don't know, <laughs> but you're going to know. I honestly manifested it. The It's a long story. So, But the first time I met him was at the Mermaid Theatre at Blackfriars. Mm-hmm. He was uh, over because he was promoting an EP. Okay. And... I was in the audience at the end of the, the the show and he was just jamming. He got loads of people up on stage. I was one of them. So I'd already my life was made. Yeah. Got off stage. Security took me by the hand. I'm like, where am I going? Why have you why have you got hold of me? Take me around the back. Beverly Knight, this is Prince. I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. <gasps> so I meet him really briefly. Then um I see him again. Again, really briefly, at a show that was being made in Newcastle called the Millennium Tube. It was the Tube, but a special Millennium broadcast. And he had my album. <laughs> so I was like, What is okay, happening? Met, I've met Prince and he's got my album. Oh my God. Fast forward years later, right. I get a phone call to say, Prince wants you to open for him at the O2. He's doing a record breaking run at the O2 but he wants you to open for him me and a, a, you know there's other people as well and I was like yes yeah, <laughs> I already had yeah, yeah. tickets for a few shows oh did you um oh god yeah I, wow. I, I spent my money on Prince. my wow. god so I had tickets but I did the show the first show I did was first of September I always remember it did my thing came off stage and he grabbed me literally grabbed me grabbed my left arm the details. Yeah. Grabbed my left arm <laughs> and said, I want you to do the after show with me. It's going to be just over there at the Indigo Club. Yeah. And I was like, absolutely. So I did that, opened for him and 
while I was playing Keep This Fire Burning, which is really easy, it's two chords, just a really simple kind of four to the, not four to the four, but like a, a stomp kind of groove, mm. I hear this other guitar going on. I'm like, Who's, who, who is that? That is some guitar. Oh my God, it can't be. Prince walks out playing guitar to keep this fire burning and I've got to keep singing. Oh my, my guitarist goodness. is like... <laughs> yeah, trying to keep up. To, <laughs> we're all like, this can't be happening. The crowd who are there, you know, absolutely go mental. Wow. I'm trying to hold it together. Oh my gosh. And that was the first of, of me singing with him. Yeah, I mean, I... That is, that is a dream come true. It was a dream come true. It made me want to shout from the rooftops, guys, if you have a dream, mm. believe in that dream, manifest that dream, because I'm telling you, it works. It wor it worked for me yeah. because I could not have written that. I couldn't have written it. I, I wanted it to happen more than life itself, but the way it happened, couldn't have written that at all. And it, it just, yeah, I began to like, preach the gospel, if you like, of getting people to really get behind their dreams and never let go of them. Because one day, sooner or later, in a way you don't even realise, that's going to happen for you. I mean, you've had so many magical moments yeah. in your career, in your life. I mean, this this podcast is all about finding out about yeah. these moments that have yeah. helped shape you. And I mean, I could refer to so many, but mm. one that I'm going to refer to is... yeah. 2013, right? when you played Rachel Maron. This was your West End <laughs> debut yeah. in The Bodyguard at the Adelphi Theatre. Yeah. Tell me about that because up until that point, you were like established in the music industry. Mm -hmm. Like you've done so many things. I mean, you're with Prince, David Bowie is telling everyone you're incredible. And the next thing you step into the world of like, musical theatre. Yes. What was that like? That came about because I'd hit a point in my career where I thought, I could do another album, yes, but you know, I I want there's something else out there. There's something more. And while I was in this kind of state of flux in my own head, a script arrived, but it was for a musical called Memphis. They didn't have a theatre or anything, but they just wanted to have the lead female signed up you know, so they could more easily sell it into a theatre. And this came via Lenny Henry and his partner, Lisa Makin. Just having that script, being sent that script, flicked a switch in my head. Mm. A couple of weeks later, I'm scrolling through Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> I kid you not, Twitter. And my eye sees a tweet. Oh, cast change for The Bodyguard is imminent. I'm like, cast change. Oh, all the lingo. I didn't even know right, the lingo. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay. So they're obviously looking for new members to join the, the cast. Well, I know that story. I know the film. I know the songs. I know exactly the kind of character Rachel Maron was, yeah. you know, diva, blah, blah, blah. I reckon I could do that. I've got enough acting ability, I think, you know. I'd like to give it a shot. And so <laughs> I told management I was kind of put in front of the director, given a scene to read, read the scene, sang a bit of a song, you've got the role. 
Well, it was just instant. Just from from me looking at the tweet to getting the role was two weeks. Wow. So I was like, yes. Oh my God. I've got the role. I'm doing it. Yeah. This isn't this isn't the Wolverhampton Grand Theatre. You know what I mean? I was like You've come a long way from the Wolverhampton Grand Theatre. I'm like, this is the West End. This is proper acting. Yeah. Can I do it? I thought, I don't know if I can do it. Oh my god! But it's too late now. I've got to, yeah, 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 <laughs> I've got there. to do like, it. It's happening. It. You've been cast. Like, exactly. Nothing stopping you. I did it for almost a year, mm. and during that year, Memphis became available. The the, the theatre, and so I left the bodyguard. I went straight into rehearsals for Memphis, which again was so well received and so critically acclaimed. And uh, that was, that kind of got people going, oh, okay, this isn't just a singer Mm. playing a singer, you know, in this particular setting. This is someone who's got some acting ability because Memphis required a bit more Mm. from me. So much so that they, you know, nominated me for an Olivier, which you can't imagine how shocked (laughs) I was. Shocked. And it just kept going. It was role after role after role. And I thought, I guess this is me for the foreseeable then, you know, as well as music. So yeah. the two have coexisted ever since. This is so interesting because you've had so many different careers almost. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's, now you're like so well known in the West End world. Which is mad because I look in the mirror and I just see Bev, you know. <laughs> Bev, floor <laughs> Um <laughs> But I initially see the singer, you know, mm. and then I'm like, oh, yeah, and I act as well. But seeing these these younger people yeah. who are starting off in their journey saying, oh, I looked up to you as an inspiration. I'm like, hey? <laughs> where? <laughs> you know, then, oh, I've done this 10 years. So if these kids and a lot of them are young, if they're like 18, they know me primarily yeah. as an actress. Exactly. You know, That's what I found really interesting. And yeah. I was like, oh, my God. Whereas people who were, you know, my generation and a little bit younger and you know, definitely older, think of me as Beverly Knight, the singer. Yes. And have to be reminded, oh, she's done some acting as well. So it's very, very strange. And in the best possible way, yeah. it's wonderful, you know, that I'm different things to different folk. I want to know now something. Yeah maybe that people don't know about. Yeah. Maybe something like, because we like to keep it real so yeah, people yeah, know yeah. about the struggle. Yeah. Something that maybe wasn't so positive that happened to you, a moment that helped define and shape who you are. Oh, pff. no problem. God, <laughs> there's, been a, there's been a few. There was the moment where I released the album Affirmation. Who mm-hmm. I am was album number three in my life and the second album for Parlophone Records. So it was the third for them, fourth for me. And it had come off the back of shoulda, woulda, coulda been this massive international hit and, you know, and the album had done really well and platinum and And then Affirmation drops and the first single is Come As You Are. Mm -hmm. And I thought, naively, foolishly, that... Because I had had this degree of success, that I was now free to give weight to my artistic right. 
expression, mm -hmm. you know. The music I was doing was soul music, but it wasn't a narrowly defined soul music. I thought mm -hmm. I could broaden it even further. So Come As You Are comes out. And to me, it sounded like Sly and the Family Stone or the Isley Brothers because it had this kind of driving guitar and this stomp in the chorus, which for me was a, a lift from Dance to the Music by mm. Sly and the Family Stone. Well, the <laughs> R&B and soul and, you know, the urban community, they didn't hear that. They heard something else. They heard selling out. That's mm. what they heard. Okay. Oh, she's abandoned her soul roots. I'm like, but this is, this is, this has come from soul. It, it's the same thing. It's just got a bit more guitar on it. I, I don't understand because in, again, in my naivety, in the way that Prince was multi-genred, but he was one genre, the genre of Prince, I thought I could embrace slightly different sounds, but it was all my sound. Well, I could, mm. but they weren't happy, you know, at all. So um, the reviews for it came from, from that community and they trashed it and they trashed the song. The song went top five. So it was a massive, <laughs> oh, wow. massive, despite massive hit. Mm. Despite all of that. And then because people thought that the old album was going to be like that, you know, people didn't even want to listen to the album, Affirmation. So based on Come As You Are, the reviews were just like really, really not nice. Mm. Um, and then at the time, you know, this is pre-social media, so the public can't tell you directly yeah. what they think. I think the whole world hates my album um, because all I'm reading is, uh, vacuous, this, that and the other. I'd written a song about the death of my best friend. Um you know, two songs on there, but oh. people were using words like vacuous and, you know, forgettable and words that were like, Ooh, yeah. you know, and this phrase, you know, selling out that was coming specifically from the urban community. And it began a real disconnect that took years to repair between me and that community. Because mm. the next thing I did... <laughs> but I did it and I have no regrets, was I spoke up about homophobic lyrics mm -hmm. in Dancehall, which was seen as a betrayal of my Jamaican heritage and right. my Jamaican roots. Mm. And But, you know, I'm an LGBTQIA ally to my core mm. and to the last breath, yeah. you know? And I wasn't prepared to back down on that. But that was yet another thing. So this kind of chasm opens okay. up between me and them. And that was hard. That was hard. I found myself going on kind of specialist radio stations, you know, niche radio stations, because that whole digital thing had just begun to open up. Um, defending myself, defending my artistic choices and defending myself against, you know, standing up for the LGBTQ community, which I found bizarre. Mm. And it was only then when I realised, you know, this, the music industry is pretty myopic in some areas. That taught me a lesson. 
how much strength do you have? How much resilience do you have? Because it's in those moments that you really find out who you are yeah. and how much you've got in your, you know, in your tank. Um, and it turns out that I had a lot of self-belief, thank God, because mm. I just, I stood and faced it off. I was like, I know you guys hate me. There was one magazine that said, we will never, ever write about her again, ever. But I w stood firm in my belief, going back to what we talked about, yeah. this belief, this, this confidence, yeah. confidence, this belief that they would all come round to my way of thinking. They don't think it now, but one day they will come round to where I am. And that took about a decade. Whoa. A good decade. So when I think of today, you know, you have people like Sam Smith who stands in their truth mm -hmm. and, you know, you got M&E &EK, mm -hmm. people who the industry would have thrown under a buzz at one point. Mm. You know, little Nas X, yep. never in your born days, you know. <laughs> but these guys are here and they're living their truth and they're free to do their art and it's fantastic and I'd like to think that little old me and people like me who refused to back down helped to make that happen and helped to broaden the scope of music Afropunk mm, is a thing exactly you know yeah You've spoken a lot about Prince being a huge influence in your life. Yeah. David Bowie. I mean, you even had the privilege of working with these people, meeting them. Mm. What about in your own personal life? Is there one person you can think of in your personal life that has impacted you in a big way? There was a man who really believed in me and believed in all the kids, but really, really helped to kind of and he didn't know it but really kind of helped me have the, the 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 technical tools that one needs that I carry to this day and that was my music teacher Mr Regler Mr John Regler still call him sir I'm trying not to <laughs> but it's a habit of a lifetime John Regler he 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 came into our school a little later on kind of when I was about 13, I'd had a, 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 another music teacher. He had left. Mr. Regler came in and he just had a really cool and fresh approach. He was no joke. You didn't mess about with him, but he loved music. He was passionate about music and the way he taught it reflected his passion. And he let us kids grab whatever instruments we wanted to. Well, I always would gravitate towards the piano because mm. that's what I played Badly, but never mind, <laughs> enough to write my songs. And the thing that I always remember about him was this one specific lesson. He taught us a, a piece of music, which was one melody line, but the 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 kind of the, the, the rest of the instrumentation around it would change, but the melody itself never changed and it would just repeat and repeat and repeat. It's a classical piece from, I think, the 17th century. I'll hum a bit. It went... And it goes over and over again. But what happens around it is different. Right. That 
moment was when the light bulb switched on and I understood what a producer does. Mm. He didn't know he was teaching me, this kid who's one of many kids in the class, about the rudiments of production. But because of what he was saying, I understood it. So there's this piece of music. If you put a slow beat behind it, it becomes a ballad. If you put a fast beat behind it, it's a disco song. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. If you change a couple of notes, you know, and and you know, and make it sound more happy, you know, it's a it's a, a joyful sounding song, but it was quite mournful because it had these minor notes. You know, you can dress songs up. This melody was the mannequin and the production is the clothes. And it just was like, I don't know, it was like I was seeing colour. And I understood it. And that lesson and that man set me on a path of understanding how I was going to approach my own music and my own production and my own arrangements when it came to my own songwriting. Wow. He didn't know it until years later. He would always come to see me in, in, in my shows, God bless him. And I had the chance to sit him down backstage and I took his hand and I said, Mr. Regler, John, 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 <laughs> let me tell you, do you remember that class and I had to sing the song because, yeah. you know, he's, he's retired now. And I sang it to him and I said, do you remember that that lesson you taught us? He's looking at me like, you are smoking crack. I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> so I reminded him yeah. and I reminded him of, of, of him teaching us how a melody can be happy if you change that note and a melody can be sad if you do this and how the production makes it sound like springtime and how this production makes it sound like winter and how I said you taught me about production you didn't know it but that is what you were teaching me Mm. blessing me started to cry because he hadn't realized the influence that he had had on my career it was huge it was a huge moment for me. He was a special one. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, all the kind of technical things about singing, the shoulders back, you know, the the the, the head being 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 raised so you can sing to the back of the room and breathing from the diaphragm. Come on, Beverly, you know, <laughs> I know you've got that breath. Come on, come on. <laughs> breathing from there and holding a note, you know, enunciating you know, and uh, 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 you know, having that diction of all the words mm. and all these things which I'd never thought about, but he gave those tools to me, which I have to this day. Thank what, you, Mister Regular, you know, big John. up Mister Regular, Mister Regular, John, <laughs> John, John, Jr. Big up Jr. Jr. <laughs> in the building. I tell you. I've loved talking to you today because really? I just feel like oh, I chat a lot, didn't I? But I just love it all. I, I could stay here for like a whole other, like a whole other day talking to you because <laughs> you've got to see the music industry through so many different periods, so yes. many different times. You've almost had so many careers over this time. Yeah. Thirty years in the industry, yeah, yeah, and you're still here today. And the thing that I've taken away from it is. Always work on your craft 
Correct. Because for all the years that you were doing the groundwork, like you said, you didn't even know what you were preparing for. No but idea. Then each time the opportunities came to you, yeah. you had the tools. Yeah. And the second thing I've learned is that you really need to have that self-belief. Because through every part of your life and in every story, you've mm -hmm. had this unwavering confidence. Yes. And you've always just been like, yeah, I'm going to do that. Bodyguard, yeah, I'm going to be in that. Prince, yeah, yeah I know your catalogue. Let's go. Like you've never doubted yourself no. along the way. And no. that's why you're still sitting here. So <laughs> thank you for it's sharing all of this knowledge with me today. It's an absolute pleasure. I hope, I pray that there's someone watching this who can draw from that mm. and know that, it, you know, if you just really dig deep and believe and don't waver, don't waver, be resilient, be resilient and persistent, mm. you know, and keep working, keep working, keep working. Eventually, it'll work for you in your favour. You've got a new album coming out. Yes. Tell me about it. It's called The Fifth Chapter because <laughs> chapter five in my career. If every 10 years is, is a chapter, then I'm on <laughs> number five. And it's out on the 29th of September. It's, it's a broad church of soul, R&B, gospel, funk. Yes. It's all there. All the flavours are there. And I am so excited about it. Oh, you're speaking my language. I can't wait. What are your <laughs> socials that we can follow you on? Oh, well, it, oh God. Everything's simple for me. <laughs> Beverly Knight. It's just at Beverly Knight for everything. B-E-V-E-R-L-E. Why? Because we're English. We're not American. I am not a shopping mall. I am not a hill in Los Angeles. <laughs> Emily Knight. And I'm sure we'll see you on another chat like this in another 25 Absolutely years. Absolutely correct. That is correct. That's right. That's the plan. I'll be 75 and I'll still be singing. You will. Something. I have no doubt. Your confidence is rubbing off on me. I Good. believe it. Good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Beverly. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Shaping Success, a Simply Be podcast. If you like what you've heard, please give us a follow and a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Shaping Success is a Folding Pocket production. <laughs>